This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! It's Rog. Oh, it's Wednesday. What a day at Men in Blazers. Wednesday podcast, the best podcast designed to lift the spirit and give you Jordan Hendo-level energy. It is a thrill of thrills to have this man join us. It's Tucker Carlson's nemesis, generous financier of the world's premier marble league, treasurer of the Wendy Williams fan club from his bunker in an undisclosed location in Manhattan. It's a gent known to us at Men in Blazers as one of Liverpool Football Club's biggest fans. Yeah, I went there, Damian Lewis, and the rest of the world as one of the last truth-tellers in the United States of America, a man who has thankfully stockpiled so much of our nation's compassion, empathy, humour and critical thinking and is using it as a force for good. Welcome back to the pod, the James Milner of HBO. (laughs) It's Mr John Oliver. (laughs) Utility player, you can put me anywhere and I'll do a job. Am I the best at what I do? Emphatically no, but there's a decent person under there. That was your job interview with Richard Plepler all those years ago. But we are talking now against a backdrop of dark days for America, John. I'm old enough to remember when the United States failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup felt like the end of the world. Where are you right now emotionally between light and darkness, hope and despair? I guess... In a football analogy, it's the semi-final of uh, the Italian 90 World Cup. It's a bad game and you want things to go well. There's hope there, but institutional obstacles in your way. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's a, this is a very, very difficult time. And it's hard to... Um, it, you, you always want to dangle some hope in front of you, right? You don't want to... You want to have a carrot to uh, trot towards, um, but uh, it's, yeah. O- optimism too often has been used as an anesthetic. So I think, uh, I think you, you can't expect change because historically we've not seen change, um, the kind of change that is required. So I think it's really about taking outrage and turning it into action, sustained pressure, because this machine is built to withstand fury. Is there anything that gives you optimism? Anything that you've seen? Honestly, a little bit. And so that's, that's what you have to catch yourself, right? Because just seeing, especially young people, but not just young people around the world, taking a look at this and thinking, fuck this shit, is actually genuinely edifying. You know, my, my, my kind of well of optimism for the human condition has been a little low of late, but watching people in Bristol pull down a statue that shouldn't have been there for decades and throw it into the river where it unquestionably belongs, kind of, there was something very powerful about that. It just, it has to be a seed. We need, things need to grow from that. But that, moments like that action, you need hope, right? You, you need hope to propel you forward. Um, uh, not not so much hope that you become overcomfortable, but th- there are there is there are definitely seeds of hope that I'm seeing enough to make me feel like change is possible, if not probable. Um, th- this week, I've thought a lot about Charles Dickens looking down on us 
and being like, mm-hmm. holy crap, I was wrong about the 1770s. 2020 is really the best of times, the worst of times, the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, yeah. season of light, season of darkness. Now, you are someone who I know, it's one of the reasons I admire you. You feel things deeply. How have you personally lived this past three months of pandemic and experienced global lockdown, chronic misinformation, overlapping police murder, national protests? Psychologically, have you coped with the overload? I mean, not great, if I'm completely honest. You know, I'd probably put myself mentally at about a three. Bite your arm off for a three, John Oliver. <laughs> Yeah, the thing is, I'm not sure if it's really appropriate to be higher than a three right now without being a genuine sociopath. Even Brodge is just on a seven. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it has been tricky. I think the the one thing, again, that gives me a, a sense of optimism is that what this is doing this year, it feels, is bringing all the things that we have been able to ignore in comfort into the light. Uh, and you can, can't ignore them anymore, uh, however easy that is. Have you learned anything new about yourself in this unprecedented time? Oof. I don't... That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know about that. I think because... I think I, I always knew that despair was a club in my bag and that I've definitely pulled that club out and swung it around a bit over the last few months. <laughs> um, but, I, I, but I'm very grateful for it. It's been uh, difficult logistically, kind of writing and producing a show from home, especially with a couple of kids around. But I also slightly worry about what would have happened to my mental state if I'd not had this outlet. Because uh, I think this, this for me, really was a way to force yourself to reflect, to force yourself to kind of calcify your thoughts, I think is, uh, has been a positive thing. So I'm hoping I'll come out of this a better person. Right now, it feels like I'm worse. Oh, to golf clubs named despair, to, to, to <laughs> calcifying, both of which I think you poured into last week tonight on Sunday night you delivered a show that was a tour de force on the police. Everyone should watch it. If you haven't, just pause this podcast, YouTube it now. I will say, I like your show better when you were deep diving into weather forecasting and Japanese mascots. You and me both. But last Sunday night's show was a, it was a howl into the abyss. I mean, can, can you give us a sense of the creative process it took to essentially write a PhD distilled into 33 minutes, 22 seconds, get it passed through the muster of HBO Legal in a week, in a week. Can you break down the process? It's not a normal process. Um, it's very rare. Uh, only occasionally in the seven years that we've been doing this show have we crashed a show in a week that is the show in its entirety. Uh, I think we did it post the election in 2016. Um, we did it post uh, the um, the Kavanaugh hearings, and we did it now, I think i think that might be it uh, when we've just done a whole show from start to finish about something and uh, it was really an all staff effort uh, so people were putting thoughts into emails um 
we were uh, uh, it was all hands to the pump in terms of researchers and footage producers we were splitting the story up talking to experts as fast and as deeply as we could uh, and then trying to coalesce that into something that felt useful i think for us it felt like what we could add was context to the conversation that had been taking place all week uh, uh, more context because it's it's very easy to say in shorthand there is a history of uh, uh, racism in policing in america and it does it, saying it in shorthand does not mean it's not true. Showing it in longhand, it, it kind of helps. And then we'd seen that amazing clip of Kimberly Jones, oh. um, the the author, and it really felt like the best thing that we could do. Because I'm not sure the extent to which uh, it is. Um, it's particularly helpful to have it come from a white man. Uh, the what we were saying. Uh, it felt like the most important thing that we could do was give Kimberly Jones 33 minutes of setup, basically, so that you so that you you understood as she starts talking what she's talking about, and then in 90 seconds um, she said it better than I could in 32 minutes. Yeah, I mean the, 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 your delivery in that 32 minutes. One of our listeners, Justin Sona, called your style of delivery the Gagan pressing of news reporting. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when I watched Sunday Night Show, which I've watched three times, I thought about you making it all week. The content was such, I mean, it is, it's such terribly dark, all-encompassing terrain for America, a, a, a place, an idea that we, we both love deeply. And I wondered, as you made it, did you learn whether what Nietzsche said was true when you stare into the abyss? Does the abyss stare back at you, John? It's a. I will say, it was a. It was a, an, a monumental effort from our entire staff, uh, and so normally, how I feel at the end of that is, you feel a sense of um, real community because in, in a normal situation, uh, I've been with my staff physically all week, but we can see what we're going through uh, collectively, uh, uh, and you can kind of gauge each other's mood then I'll be in front of an audience and my crew and we'll kind of, we'll get a sense of like what, what emotional waters you're trying to traverse. What is very strange is being isolated at this time. That was, that was what made it particularly difficult because I was just alone in this room, <laughs> basically speed talking to a camera with no sense of any kind of, human response even when our, our audience is silent you can get a sense of what they're feeling you know what kind of what content is inside that silence it was difficult to gauge whether anything was helpful to be honest i was i, I was i was i'm very relieved that people found it useful uh, I, and i think it's slightly I, I can understand it being infuriating that uh, some of the things that people have been saying for decades uh, are being listened to because a white man said it. I mean, you just cannot dodge the fact uh, that that is kind of embodies part of the problem that we're in. So, so much of what I'd learned, I'd learned from White Sennac's, uh show Problem Areas. Amazing. It was really great. It was a great show, kind of long form comedy, wildly ambitious. Like devoting a 10 episode series and he's a great listener so he he was really really good at um 
giving people who are making significant efforts uh, on a local level, giving them a voice and kind of shining a light on what they were doing. Uh, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant show and I wish people had watched it more. And I, honestly, I wish people were watching it more now. It's, it's on YouTube right now and I cannot recommend it enough. Find it. Find it and devour it. It is remarkable. It is, it is genuinely a remarkable piece of television. More poignant now even. Definitely. And it unfolds slowly in a helpful way because you kind of see on, the, on a micro level what can be done. You know, I did wonder when it finished whether you would do that. It's one of the thrills of my week when you finish a show, you do that giddy little John Oliver beating on your oh, desk with your yeah, hands. Yeah. And I wondered whether you did that or I actually mentally pictured you more like Krusty the Clown when the cameras go off, just trudging sadly <laughs> off into the corner yeah. of a dark room. But you are a remarkable man. Over the past seven seasons, last week tonight has grappled with some of the darkest issues, not just in the nation, but in the world. And to put that show together, I often mentally picture you on your hands and knees, constantly stirring the swill of humanity. I want to ask you, how do you cope with all that darkness, John? And you didn't have to wait a beat. You said, football, football is my escape, Liverpool. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's right. That's the thing. I guess as a British person, you are, so you are biologically engineered to crystallize the darkness, push it down, and hopefully form it into a diamond. <laughs> Welcome to Everton Football Club. The sun <laughs> is your diamond. How have you coped without that diamond, without that escape? I, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting point, right? Because I think one of the reasons why we're able to focus so much on systemic problems right now is that the, the kind of the distractions that we're all accustomed to are gone. So the kind of thing that will lift you for a moment out of uh, you know, confronting uh, deep societal issues is sitting and watching a baseball game or a football game or a hockey game or, you know, yeah, for us, watching Liverpool or Everton. And with that gone, yeah, there's, there's not much in the way of a release anymore. It's no opium for the masses. That's right. That's, right. That's the thing. That's the thing. Oh, Karl Marx. You know, opium is Moorish, isn't it? You take a little yeah. bit and you think, oh, that, it might not be good for me, but it does help in the short term. Oh, and we are entering a world in which that opium for the masses, football, which was once an escape, that itself has now become supercharged yes. with protest, demonstration, politics yeah. across Europe. It's great. It, I mean, Great. it is. It's fact that the demonstrations across Europe, the George Floyd murders have, have kind of shattered that stick to sports mentality of even the most commercially driven sports leagues in Europe. And I know Drew Brees is listening and has not yet got the memo. But this weekend in the Bundesliga, everyone from Bayern Munich to Dortmund kicked off games with group taking of the knee. They've worn Black Lives Matter armbands. Do you do you embrace this newly socially conscious sports world and, and the platform that the Premier League has to fight. Is there a danger of it becoming rote lip service, John? I mean, there's a danger in anything be becoming rote lip service. I don't think that is unique to sports, but uh, I think it is entirely appropriate that athletes, especially who have lived through some of the issues that are being raised right now, are empowered to speak about it from a point of experience. Uh, and um, Raheem Sterling. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. It, yeah, it's it, it's um, you know, there there are reasons there are reasons to be hopeful that you know, 
football can be inherently selfish, right? Because you can use it as an anesthetic and because, right, the players can decide, you know, in, in the in the way that in American sports, there, there were those criticisms of of OJ and um and of Michael Jordan and of any any athletes who where, where it feels like you have got to the point where you can kind of put social blinkers on and just drive forward. Uh and yeah, kind of employ an I'm all right, Jack attitude, and not want to rock the boat when when you're on a 300 foot yacht. Uh, and it's, it is, uh, it is, I think it's a, a good thing. No, p- people, people listen to footballers and um, when they can express themselves with a raw emotion, because you don't often see that in them. <laughs> kind of being yeah. media trained out of self-expression. Yes. And which, which means it, it kind of resonates more. To cling on to, you know, no to racism is what they normally yes, say. Of or course, no, equality for they don't say black lives matter. And I do. I think there is a, a truth that it's easier for Europeans to point at racism in America. Of course, it is. And, and there's a, they almost ease themselves into thinking about their own nation's challenges. And uh, and it's not going to be applauded until we appoint more black managers, have more black owners, have black men and women as directors in the boardrooms of football clubs, but. When Liverpool released that photograph of the whole squad taking a knee in the centre circle of Anfield last week, Big Verge yes. and Wijnaldum's idea, apparently quite remarkable. 29 players from Europe, Asia, Africa, South yeah. America, not one born in America, showing their hearts were in Minnesota. And, and also on the abuse they received as players coming through in Europe. Astonishing. What did you experience seeing that? Well, it was very inspiring. I will also say, I do think it's important to self-reflect at, at this time as well, because one of the most dangerous things uh, is often to kind of, uh, to luxuriate in the comforting bath of thinking, I'm not a racist. Almost so, so you can get a sense, I'm not a racist. So great, I did it. I did it. <laughs> I wasn't a racist. <laughs> Fine. It's freewheeling morally for me from now on. It's true. Was, well, the, and it was really inspiring to see Liverpool do that. I will say it does make me think not only about how great that is, but how far we've come from relatively recently. Because those I stand with Luis Suarez after uh, after that incident, that's unforgivable. Where he abused Patrice Evra, Manchester United, on the football field. That's right. And then the Liverpool players came out with like uh, Luis Suarez T-shirt. That, and I know that that has given Jamie Carragher pause now as it should have done but I'm glad that he is moving to self-reflection on how that was handled at the time rather than defensiveness I think Bamani Jones who's a great sports writer here in the United States had kind of said one of the one of the key things here is can you not be defensive when uh when uh when issues that are uncomfortable for you are brought up and so I'm really glad that Liverpool did that just as I am kind of ashamed in retrospect that that instinct was, oh, let's rally behind Luis Suarez because he's a really great player, which he really was. He really was a great player. However, was he great enough to, in hindsight, justify the kind of whitewashing of what happened there? No, he wasn't. And it wasn't okay that Liverpool did that. And I'm as ashamed of that as I am proud of how they reacted now. John, that, that is a critical statement that you just dropped, that, that moment where you say, oh, I'm not a racist, I've done my work. I, I, yeah, I've, I've done it. I've done it. I've kept the work in. I, I didn't do... 
didn't do the easiest thing, which was not be racist. I want to move through to the football. March 16th, you went on a, I have to say, stunningly impressive rant on your show, venting your frustration at the fact that the season was suspended, although rightly suspended, just two wins away from Liverpool glory. Personally, I'm going to be spending uh, the next 30 seconds being furious about the fact that my favourite football team, Liverpool, were literally two games away from winning the league championship before games were suspended. So let's start the clock now. Because here's the thing, I've waited my entire adult life for this. They were about to win the title for the first time in 30 years. They were 25 points ahead of Man City. 25 points, that's historic margin. And you're telling me it could be for nothing? Mo Salah deserves to be a, a Premier League champion. The coach, Jurgen Klopp, deserves this. And I know he has specifically pointed out in a beautiful essay you should look up that we should not worry about the league right now. We should keep things in perspective. But the very fact that he wrote something like that just makes me want him to win the title even more. I want to, I want to see the trophy go through the Tentley gates. That doesn't make you a bad person. Okay, okay, that's it, that's it. We're out of time. It's out of my system now. It just feels like they should really give Liverpool the league title because they basically won it. That would actually be fair. Okay, okay, okay. It's okay. I'm done. It's just because it's not like anyone's going to catch up from a 25 point deficit. Anyway, okay, okay, you're right. You are right. Sports are not important right now. They're not important right now. I mean, they're not really important ever, but they're especially not important now. Was there a moment in the last hundred days, give or take, we've been in lockdown that you have thought it's never coming back? Liverpool are going to be forever in purgatory, agonisingly stranded six points short of that title. Yes, yes, of course. There's been that time, and it was, and there is, you know, there is the uh, the selfish part of your stomach. is is definitely definitely kicks in saying, oh why 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 have we been cheated so? And I tell you what really helps is having Jurgen Klopp not as just a manager but as a basic moral compass at that point because he has guided me away from those feelings in a genuinely helpful way. He's a better person than I am. I think. And while the things he said are not particularly revelatory, they're definitely revelatory, revelatory coming from a football manager and. To, to speak with such eloquence as he did at the time, it kind of, I think it was really genuinely helpful. It was definitely, for me, I think it might have been helpful for, for all Liverpool fans as well to guide you away from that feeling of something's been taken away from me to, well, let's just accept that that something is not as important as it was yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, by the way, in this time of darkness, Jurgen Klopp has said so much that's sensible, beautiful, yeah. Human with his team within yes. touching distance really of eternal yeah. fame, delivering the kind of speech that really presidents and prime ministers should have delivered, but didn't. I've said before, football always seems the most important of the least important things. Today, football football matches really aren't important at all. If it's a choice between football and the good of the wider society, it's no contest. Really, it isn't. What was that like to experience? Because... I know you thought a lot about it. Yeah, I did. And I think, you know, ideally it wouldn't have meant that much. But of course, because the leaders that we have at the moment in America and in Britain uh, are so devoid of empathy, uh, that the the bar was pretty low for being able to kind of, uh, you know, guide people emotionally through something. And so to watch someone empathise in a desert of empathy, he became a real kind of emotional oasis. And uh, 
I, I, I have found it, like as embarrassing as it is to say, I've found what he said uh, to be a really helpful way to navigate through all of this, not just through how to navigate through the lack of football, but to navigate through like, what real priorities are yeah. right now. I mean, when you last came on our television show in December, I asked you, it was a flip question at the end, a throwaway. I said, was Jurgen Klopp the leader the free world needs? <laughs> and you, brilliant, didn't have to wait a single second. You said, yes, but Liverpool Football Club needs him more. John, yeah. with, well, the world, I... with the world in the state it's in, care to revisit? Is that still the case? I mean, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can kind of do a loan programme. It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, just let him get a title under his belt first. Then we'll talk about whether, you know, whether he can do... Do a lesser job. A couple of seasons as leader of the free world. What is the free world now anyway, Jürgen, says John Oliver. It's just Canada, Scotland exactly, and New yeah. Zealand. Exactly. Uh, but I just released a digital film yesterday. It was five lessons about life I've learned by interviewing Jürgen Klopp over the past right. four and a half years. And he's, he's such an incredible bloke. Even I, who am barely human, most 97% Everton, 3% human... Lessons like don't cover what you lack, Coutinho. Make the best of what you have, your front three. How you face up to defeat defines you. Effort must always have value. It, it, it's amazing what he's done. Well, yeah, I think what's what was particularly remarkable to me about him is that you know uh, football managers have been characterised by these heavily emotionally blinkered, slightly damaged individuals who will put themselves, their team, and their families, you expect, through hell, uh, just because they become so immersively dedicated to football that there's not much room for anything else. And I, I, the thing that I find genuinely astonishing about him is his ability to focus on that level, but then snap out of it and see the bigger picture. Yeah. It feels like seeing the big picture is not a natural sensibility for anyone in football. And uh, it needs to... <laughs> It needs to be the case more. Him and, and Pep as well. I mean, it's not like he's a unicorn. Pep has, uh, has been great as well in terms of trying to guide football questions into questions about humanity. Yeah, but the difference is for Klopp, and he said it to me on several occasions, winning is not ultimately what matters. It's about being a good person. It's about how you win. I mean, that is remarkable for an elite football manager. Inside of Pep, it's just it's a pure and incredible can comp- competitive fire that burns that's true yeah. you, you've got Klopp lose a heartbreaking final to Real Madrid bounce back win the Champions League the next year lose a close run title race to Man City dig yeah. deeper go again if you can do it do it if you can't fail in the most beautiful way possible to oh, me yeah. I don't like to go a bit hyperbolic but he could, you can make the case he's less a footballer more a profit in New Balance tracksuit like Paul Apostle <laughs> was just a tent maker you know, it, it, to me, he's almost up there with Adam Driver. I know you love you, some Adam Driver. The, the ultimate question, yeah. which man, Klopp or Adam Driver, is truly break my fingers, you brooding mountain? It's Klopp, because he wouldn't break his fingers. He'd rest his German hand upon those fingers. <laughs> and he'd say, you don't need this. You need to believe in yourself more. You don't need to break your fingers to wake you up. You need to wake yourself up. And he'd walk away and you'd think, self-reflection from a football manager... And a German football manager at yes. that. Yes, he's a Teutonic care bear. The Germanic robotic sensibility has gained sentience and it's more <laughs> human than any of us. <laughs> 
And he's coming back. He's coming back because Premier League football's coming back. Full speed ahead. Yeah. Oh, first of all, have you watched any of the Bundesliga, the fanless guys games? What do you think about it as a spectacle? Is it watchable? Is it a bit like trying to make sweet love to someone while having to wear a spacesuit? I've watched almost nothing. I watched the first goal in that first Dortmund game and then saw them run to each other and then stop and thought, yeah, this is weird. This is very weird. <laughs> almost like they just stop six feet from each other and then just dance on their own like they're in a kind of Antwerp disco. Yes. <laughs> I've been to that disco, John. It was an amazing night. If like that should be the new celebration, run to the corner flag, stand six feet apart, just gyrate on your own and then have someone start a foam cannon over the top of you. Lads, you're in an Antwerp disco. 99 Luff Balloons is playing. Have a time. That's right. We have some Belgian bangers for you. Stand back for the smoke machine. <laughs> Plastic Bertrand is playing a live set. Uh, you know, to, to me, it is it is good enough. It, it's enough to connect me to the roiling conversation that burbles along in real time feel alive, feel human for 90 minutes. It's not the same. It's a bit like sports meets Mumblecore, like oh, Premier yeah. League with Andrew Bujarski directing. The fake crowd noise. I don't know what you think about that, but I prefer if they use a laugh track. It's good <laughs> enough for Wendy Williams at home. She'll be bloody well good enough for Jamie Vardy. But here's you, you, this must be literally James Milner's best case scenario. Temperature controlled, locker room, oh, yeah. tick. Balls sanitised before brought back into play, tick. Robotic levels of fitness, muted sound. If ever a man was made for Project Restart, it's Millie, right? Oh, definitely. That's right. I mean, I'm not sure that there's anyone who's ever played football more like a Westworld robot than James Milner. <laughs> It just, in the same way, that it does fit. It feels like if if he ever did kind of have a massive leg break injury, you would just stand back and it would just snap back into place. And yeah. say, yeah. let's go again. And just he just doff his white his white hat yeah. and go again. Liverpool season restarts June twenty first with why God why do you torment me so the Merseyside derby, mm-hmm. which Man City's result pending could mean Liverpool actually win the trophy on Everton's Hello Turf. Where will you be watching? Take us there, paint the picture. I guess I'll be watching here. I guess I'll be watching it where I've been watching everything for the last three months, which is here alone at home. I mean, that's the tricky thing, isn't it? And it's why I see it as being a a valid concern about whether people will gather in large numbers because football is that communal experience, especially a historic victory. You kind of feel like uh, communal experiences of the appropriate response. And of course, that's the one thing we shouldn't be doing. So I'm hoping that Klopp is actually going to be able to guide people through that as well, to try and find a way to celebrate um, together in a way that is best for the community. And I think it's, 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 I mean, he's, it's, a, it's a small, it's a very localized problem, right? But I think it, there is a concern about what will happen in Stanley Park, what will happen outside the Anfield gates when they win. And people really mustn't gather. And I, I guess we're lucky to have Klopp to do essentially an inspiring team talk for why not to assemble. When Origi crotches a ball past a flailing <laughs> Jordan Pickford and his tiny arms in yes. the 96th minute, and Jurgen Klopp oh. pulls off his tracksuit oh. top to reveal a killer might run the Jules Tour t-shirt. Yeah. It's going to be a moment for the ages. It's sure, because there is absolutely no way I would rather win the league than, yeah, a late goal that goes in off 
Origi's left testicle. <laughs> He's been training hard. He's been Not training even his hard. right testicle. That's his dominant testicle. His left <laughs> testicle. <laughs> <laughs> you put the work in, you deserve success. When Liverpool last won the title, yeah, 1990, you were, by our reckoning, yeah. and a quick Wikipedia check, just turned 30. Yes. It's just turned to, like, a, a Panini sticker album brimming brimming with badges brimming with surplus product young john just had his vomit for kenny dalglish's team finished nine points ahead of second place aston villa liverpool clinched the title april 28 with a 2-1 win over queen's park raisins ian rush and john barnes scored 13 year old john title clinch a mere five days after your 13th birthday Take us to that time and place. What do you remember about that day? I mean, it was, uh, I guess, the, the thing, it, it would feel different now because, of course, it's on the back of such success. Back, back then? Yeah. As horrible as it is to admit, like, it didn't feel, uh, it didn't feel outlandish or irregular. And they were, I, I guess, the, the, uh, the emotional part of it was um was still there but i think it's going to mean more now than it did to me as a 13 year old it, things mean more when you've been denied them 13 year old johnny had feasted yes that's right how many years are we 30 years on i only know yeah. that because that's as long as liverpool haven't won the title yes. 30 years on you're famine that's right so can you put into words what will it mean to you 2020 this backdrop of chaos global chaos liverpool win a title, a grounding moment of everything and nothingness. Can you put it into words? I don't know. I don't know how it's going to feel because as Klopp so beautifully put, it's the most important, the least important thing. So it'll feel great to a point. And I, th I think it might feel better after the fact, long after the fact than it does at the time. It almost feels like you want to enjoy it a little bit and then eventually enjoy it a lot. God, I hope that in 30 years' time we're doing a pod together and all that time we've not had to have this conversation together yeah. again because a huge part of my identity, which is awful to contemplate, is just Liverpool not winning it. And I don't begrudge you your happiness. I really don't, John. Which leads to my final question. Asterisk. A asterisk, and then you inflect it up as if it's a question? Is this really seamlessly the same season as the one Liverpool dominated that 25-point yeah, lead? Yeah, it is. Or is it, it more is. like a movie no, sequel, like no, Premier League season 2019-20 no, no. part two? No. Road no, Warrior. No. You, you've you've penciled an asterisk. I've flipped your pencil around and I've rubbed it out. <laughs> if it was another team, asterisk. Oh. Uh... Depends. It depends. If it, was an, if it was another team that was this far ahead, no. Oh, John, you are a bigger man than I. And I'm not going to force the issue because you are the guest. I'm simply going to be a good host, a begrudging, dark, twisted host, and move on to perhaps my favourite part of a Wednesday mm -hmm. pod, which I do like to be a light in the darkness. Mm -hmm. Take us out the shadow realm. Let me ask you, as we do of all our Wednesday guests, John, lift us, energise our spirits, allow us to soar fleetingly. What text or poem or speech or song do you look to to lift you, John Oliver, your John Oliver self, and you're in need of it? What is it? 
Where did you first encounter it? Why does it move you? John, the floor is yours. Well, normally in good times, you know, you want to be inspired by a piece of um, sentimental sanctimonious trash. You're talking about an Al Pacino <laughs> half-time speech in any given Sunday. <laughs> but these, these are not those times. Uh, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop, especially in these times, maybe a little bit of James Baldwin on you who said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And uh, he was right then and he's right now. It's from Baldwin's unpublished manuscript, Remember yeah, This House. Right. It was written in the last year of his life, a memoir of his recollections with civil rights leaders. And if you've seen Raoul Peck's 2016 documentary, go and watch that right after you watch John's yeah. police episode, I Am Not Your Negro. I really, really encourage you to do that. The whole film is yeah, framed right. around the manuscript. What does it make you think, John? Well, I guess it, it's it's the, you know, when you're searching for optimism that's rooted in reality, something like that uh, resonates because it's not like you are expecting everything to change now. You just know that you're in the process through which, you're going through the process through which change is possible. And that is facing something. And so, and we have to collectively face the fuck out of where we are right now. John, to you, to facing the fuck out of where we are right now with that golf club named despair. To you, <laughs> your energy, your approach to life, your willingness to challenge the world to think seriously, deeply, meaningfully. You, you are more than ever to me. I often think about what the poet Boris Pasternak said of his own role in life. He said, in every generation, there has to be some fool who will speak the truth as he sees it. John, you are ours. We are all the better for it. To you, to your family, to your team to glory courage you are writing checks my personality cannot cash rod <laughs> you just you just bounce the check of that compliment